Welcome to eHealth Talk, a podcast from Health Informatics New Zealand and hosted by me, editor of eHealth News, Rebecca Macbeth. This podcast provides a regular roundup of news and views from across New Zealand's data and digital health sector. Please be sure to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to eHealth Talk NZ. Thanks to Philips for sponsoring this podcast episode, where I'm speaking to Philips Regional Leader for EMR and Care Management, Dan Bull, about extending care beyond hospital walls. Welcome on the show, Dan. Thanks, Rebecca. Pleasure to be here. Philips recently released its Future Health Index 2022 report, Healthcare Hits Reset, which surveys the top priorities and concerns of almost 3,000 healthcare leaders across 15 countries. This report is in its seventh year, and I'd be interested to hear from you about the difference between 2022 and 2021, because this time last year, both New Zealand and Australia were very much in the midst of their pandemic responses with the arrival of Omicron on our shores. So how has the pandemic shaped responses over that 12 months? Yeah, look, it's um, it's been an exciting couple of years in, in many different ways. I think, um, you know, a lot of change within the industry. It's always interesting to go back and compare year on year the results of the, the future health index reports. You can easily kind of weave together key themes and challenges over the years. Uh, and I often wonder, you know, what, what progress have we made to address them? Um, this year's report focuses how healthcare leaders are harnessing the power of data and digital technology as they look to address the challenges, both old and, and of course, new, more as a, a result of the changes through the pandemic. Key areas explored within that uh, include the health leaders' current and future priorities, their digital technology investment areas, their attitudes towards their experiences of using data to help meet their priorities, and in particular, the role predictive analytics can play this year. Um, if we focus on the positive outcomes, recognising the role that technology continues to play in responding to the pandemic, probably one of the key lessons that healthcare leaders have learned over the last couple of years. There's a growing interest in investing in advanced predictive technologies and exploring more innovative care delivery models to ease the burden on the healthcare facilities and deliver care closer to where patients need and, and, and want it. If we take the example of telehealth, for instance, it's, it's not a new concept. Um, the fact that patients and providers alike were far more willing to engage in this way of receiving and delivering care, that opens the door to more extensive and sophisticated models of care. But of course, a lot more needs to be done to fully embed that in healthcare. When we look at healthcare staff experience, the IT infrastructure, the reimbursement policies and, and data standards, they're just some of the issues that health systems need to navigate in their digital transformation journey. As we make promising progress toward a post-pandemic recovery, there's a unique opportunity to embed some of those digital data-driven practices that we've gained over the last couple of years into the everyday healthcare operations and rethink, I guess, how and where the, the uh, healthcare is delivered. Mm, that's interesting. Uh, in New Zealand, the pandemic has really brought data and digital health to the fore with greater understanding and acceptance of technology as a key enabler of transformation. Has it had a similar impact in Australia? I think that's a really interesting point you make, Rebecca, and, and we do very much see the same trend here as, as well as abroad. You know, my, my remits uh, across across Asia Pacific at large, and we do see those those themes and trends across the region. It used to be that when you, you know, arrived at a, a roundtable with a large group of CEOs or senior health executives, um, the conversations were a little broader. But it does seem that more and more 
uh, as you enter those, the main topic of conversation um, in response to staff burnout and, and the constraints around that. Um, and, and I guess the, the changing expectations of consumers, um, they become by default discussions around um, the, the transformation of care based on digital technologies, which is a huge change um, based on uh, what we saw before the pandemic. So extending care beyond existing facilities has been identified as a key priority in Australia with a significant increase in the percentage of leaders saying this is a top priority, rising from 20% to 36% in one year and with more than 42% expecting it to become even more crucial in the future. Why is there such a strong desire to move care into the community? So, I mean, that definitely is a desire that we see from both the consumer as well as the provider these days. Um, And it is great to see those sorts of statistics really being laid out and seeing that change over time as well. The health networks across Australia and New Zealand are experiencing challenges with overburdened emergency departments, uh, ICU capacity, and of course, elective procedure backlogs that, that lead to long wait times for people seeking access to those healthcare services. As people wait longer for the surgeries, of course, their condition can quickly deteriorate and complications arise, which leads to even more care required from an overstretched system. You know, it make, makes it worse than it otherwise would be with a, a shorter wait time potentially. So while already dealing with the workforce shortages, that mounting pressure on the health systems is contributing to staff burnout. You know, the the capacity simply doesn't grow at the same rate. Healthcare leaders and providers, they need efficient, reliable means to continue to provide access to care while preserving the hospital and staff capacity. Um, It is really encouraging to see the greater prioritisation of expanding access to care with uh, 36% of healthcare leaders in the region saying this is currently their top priority Uh, and a further 42% saying it will be a key priority in the next three years. That, of course, is fueling current investments in telehealth solutions, uh, according to 45% of the healthcare leaders. Yeah, one of the key pillars of New Zealand's health reforms is to use digital services to bring care closer to people's homes. Do you see Australia and New Zealand as being on a similar track in their approach to achieving this? I think when we look at the the target state and the destination, I I think we're very much aligned. Um, But let's be realistic, you know, Australia and New Zealand have very different funding models, different different constructs, different even um, cultural elements when you look at the the health systems as well. And all of those go together to probably a very different pathway uh, along that journey. Um, You know, New Zealand has, of course, always been quite innovative digitally. They made some um, great steps, especially early on when, when digital was being established in healthcare probably one way to say it. But yeah, there certainly are some differences. You know, the the funding model in Australia will probably be one of the key influencing factors in what that journey looks like. Uh, And of course, we're now moving into a a phase where we're starting to see some of the healthcare organisations and some of the, um, uh, even the departments of health really looking at how they make a step change in that process. And I guess, you know, in New Zealand, we're seeing something similar um, based on the the reforms that have currently come through over there as well. Australia, like New Zealand, experiences issues around equity of access to care, particularly for people living rurally and those in lower socioeconomic groups. How does delivering more care outside of hospital walls address that? I guess there's a, a couple of different ways. So, you know, people living in rural or remote areas, it's no secret that they often have insufficient access to health resources within their communities themselves. That, of course, contributes to the challenges associated with accessibility and availability, as well as the affordability of healthcare services. And that's 
know, not just direct affordability, but there's, you know, travel, transport, missed wages, all of these things that come into um, moving physically into a, a healthcare service. Um, at the end of the day, they have to travel long distances to urban areas for health services, and especially when it comes to more specialised care uh, and mental health as well, um, there's already significant resource constraints in those spaces. Um, care services being hard to reach in the rural areas also causes patients to avoid care. Um, and at the same time, accessibility can be a challenge in the context of time with those trips being time consuming and expensive for patients and, and their families, um, potentially coming along and, and visiting them. And, and we'll, we may talk a little later, you know, that's what we see over in places like Western Australia, where travel distances are very, very large. The, the COVID-19 has only intensified those obstacles. By burdening the existing healthcare facilities and resources, therefore there's fewer resources for other health matters. Technology is becoming key to extending care, outreach and education to underserved communities. And 76% of healthcare leaders believe that using predictive analytics could positively impact health equity, a figure significantly higher than the global average in that regard. Uh, we already see a significant number of health provider organisations using that technology to change their models of care, not just to uh, operate side by side within their existing care provision, but really generate new models of care to better service patients where they are. And we're seeing excellent outcomes from a readmission avoidance and hospital avoidance at large perspective as well as really significant increases from a patient experience perspective. As we've mentioned already, yeah, using digital technologies to shift care closer to people's homes is one of the five key shifts in New Zealand's health reforms. We have touched on this, but what does it mean in practice? Can you give some examples? And how can New Zealand go about realising this vision? Absolutely. So um, it's great to see those reforms coming through and I guess the, the pillars of that reform. Um, you know, I, I was um, working through that and, and you see that need for increased patient engagement, which is very much a trend across the world and very much in the region. Um, and also a real focus on hospital avoidance. You know, the, the, the best hospital care to be provided is the care that you don't actually have to provide because you've avoided the you know, exacerbation of the condition or you, you've avoided the need to have that more significant treatment by that focus on either healthier living or, you know, managing in situ, uh, you know, ageing in place, all of these components. Um, I saw that there's a focus on a greater access um, and engagement with audio and visual. I think when you when you when you ask how can you go about realising the vision um, as, as an organisation that's worked with a number of health providers um, to deliver care in the space, we would highly recommend that the focus really is not on transaction replacement. Um, and in Australia specifically, we, we did see that. So around 90% of the you know, telehealth consultations in primary care were phone calls, um, which is fantastic. It is an ability to do something that they weren't necessarily doing previously and it was funded appropriately as well. But to really uh, move the needle and change the way that that care is delivered, it has to be far more about um, the management of a cohort of patients and being able to identify in advance using those predictive analytics where the patient outcomes can be best impacted with the investment of the healthcare provider resources, if that makes sense. Great. Thanks, Dan. And can you give any examples of Australian projects that have successfully scaled virtual care models? Yeah, absolutely. And, and scale is a really important piece. So we have seen that the, the outcomes of a well-implemented virtual care, um, care pathway, uh, they're 
largely unquestionable as far as their outcomes. You know, the financial return on investment is very, very strong with independently audited outcomes, as well as those uh, you know, patient experience measures and even the, the staff experience measures as well. You look at organisations such as, for example, West Morton, which is in Queensland, um, outside of Brisbane, uh, and they originally started with hospital re-avoidance for some of their really regular readmitteds within um, high levels of, of comorbidities within a particular cohort. Um, and, and we saw people effectively being given back their lifestyle without having to spend all of their time in, in hospitals and in those regular readmissions. Um, through implementing devices, uh, IoT devices and tablets within that uh, that patient's home, having that connected to the care provider within the team delivering the, the virtual care and making them feel supported um, predictively, looking at what the, what the outcomes may be based on uh, the measurements that were coming through at that, that particular time. That then scaled into a very successful program around mental health. So, you know, when you look at scale, scale can be across geographies. It can be through an increase in patient numbers through a cohort, or it can be through an increase in programs. So more and more we see a twinning of, for example, a clinical command centre or a clinical enablement centre looking at inpatient and outpatient together, or looking at multiple um, cohorts within, within outpatient care, uh, or indeed like we see in New South Wales where we have some LHDs running a virtual care program uh, within, the, within the platform that we actually offer within the market, and then having scaled that to a number of different hospital and health services services in the region, um, just to extend their reach and deliver that better care further uh, further from where they are. We've talked about COVID-19. I'm just wondering, would clinicians and patients have been receptive or as receptive to these care models if COVID hadn't arrived, do you think? Would we be where we are today in terms of progress in the virtual care space? Look, my personal opinion is that we probably wouldn't. And I think it's really interesting that you mention clinicians and patients. Obviously, they're, they're, they're the two very, very important pieces uh, of the puzzle. I think what COVID showed us or what it did was dispel the myth that patients weren't ready for it. Okay. Um, yeah, at the end of the day, even even um, groups of patients who weren't, uh, who maybe didn't have COVID front of mind, it showed that they were ready to adopt that, um, shall we say, almost arm's length engagement with the, the health organisation and that priority of their convenience uh, coming in as well. Um, you know, I don't know a whole heap of patients who want to drive into a hospital and park in the car park and wait in a waiting room for, for three hours at a time and all of this, uh, all of this stuff. The real change, I think, has been the trust and acceptance from clinicians um, in, in all, all sectors of, of health. Um, and what that meant is it's frankly become a lot more par for the course for them. They've become more um, uh, experienced in the technologies that we use to support it. And they're recognising the value that it actually provides to their um, to their consumer, to their customer, to their patient. Uh, I, was, I was talking to a, um, a doctor not so long ago actually in the mental health space. Um, and for them, they were performing video um, kind of replacement of activity with, with some of their patients. And the best thing for them was actually that they would get their patient to go up and have a look inside the fridge um, and they would be able to see that on video. And actually, it's, it's really telling for someone operating in mental health and how someone's looking after themselves as to what's in their fridge. So, you know, we did see a greater trust placed uh, in the, the, the digital technologies that we're using um, for these new models of care. Um, and I think that's probably one of the biggest differences through the pandemic. 
So Dan, in your experience, and we have touched on it there, but how does extending care beyond hospital walls impact hospital capacity and consumer experience of care? I think capacity is is well proven at this stage. You know, some of those examples I've talked of uh, across the um, outpatient uh, care for, for comorbid cohorts, um, as well as the, the mental health space, we're seeing well over 50% of ED admissions being avoided, right? You know, and that that's a really significant burden being removed from that space, especially as you grow scale, grow, grow the various cohorts that you're working with. Inevitably, from an ICU perspective, it's really about prioritisation. You know, I, I would rarely see an ICU where you're able to say, okay, we're able to move this patient out early and safely, and therefore we've got an empty bed. At the end of the day, ICU is a prioritisation game. So you can provide more critical care to more people exactly at the point it is needed. And that's how we create capacity there. But the flow and effect of a, a high quality um, inpatient virtual care program is really reducing those readmissions, making sure it is safe to move someone out at the right time. So they're in the place that is um, you know, best set up to take care of them at that particular point. So it's really that, you know, which patient should get a bed first, which patient's ready to be transferred to a step down unit, you know, who's ready to be discharged onto that home monitoring, right? And this is where we see that transition from inpatient to outpatient virtual care as well. Once you're armed with those sorts of insights, it becomes possible to manage the patient flow a lot more proactively from care setting, one care setting to the next. Um, and then, you know, obviously by expediting the patient transfers, you can prevent the congestion in certain areas of the hospital and overutilization of critical resources in others. Um, you know, interestingly, it can also have a flow on effect to how we design the next wave of hospitals. You know, we've been designing um, very similar types of hospital for a very, very uh, long time. And it'll have an impact on how hospitals are built in the future as to how we can change these models of care, take care of people outside the, the organisation itself or outside the four walls. We've had a number of big hospital projects ongoing in New Zealand, actually, and I often ask them, how do you prepare for bed space if you're planning on delivering a lot more care outside of hospital? So how do you balance those two things? Yeah, look, I won't say it's an easy balance to take, right? So what we do see is a greater involvement of data science in the approach to virtual care programs, um, models of care being changed and what have you. And at the end of the day, it's not an exact science when you look at what you're going to need in a certain period of time. However, when we look at the historical trends and the projections, the reality is no matter how many beds you build, you will run out reasonably quickly, right? So it's really about extending the capacity of finite resources and using them to their um, to their best application, right? Even, you know, we look at a very constrained um, resource environment where you know, we don't have the nurses that we need. You know, we're very, very lucky in, in Australia and in New Zealand that the, the exodus hasn't been what it is in, for example, the States uh, out, of, out of healthcare. Um, but, you know, we still have some you know, highly experienced people who uh, cannot operate directly on the floor. They're perfect to provide support and oversight and improvement of care right across the organisation through virtual programs, sitting at a desk and armed with great data. Um, so, you know, that's one of the great benefits we can have here. But, um, yeah, the use of data science is more and more critical in the planning of how we're going to deliver care into the future. Have you had much feedback on these programs you're running in Australia from consumers? It's something that before organisations implement these programs, they consider as almost a risk uh, on their you know, project plans. You know, how will our consumers react to 
being taken care of without that physical and, and personal touch. And the reality is you can actually create a far more personal touch without a physical one through these programs. You know, you, you can have a more regular touch point with the patient where they feel more supported, even if that's through at, at times algorithms and automation. Um, it's, it's very well um, demonstrated when we look at, for example, the West Morton virtual care programs. We've got some uh, even even some videos around that that people can watch of their own accord, which has a patient talk about how it's changed their life. So when you have a regular readmitter to a hospital organisation who is now in a position where they don't have to spend all of their time on the road, when they know that someone's looking at how their various biometric measures are going, are they deteriorating? Are they getting better? You know, their supported further education material is given to them. They can actually focus more on living their life than they have to on getting healthy, which is really important for them. And the same, if you look at the um, one of the organisations we work with does a significant program around um, borderline personality disorder in the, in the mental health space. Um, and again, we see excellent feedback from those consumers uh, articulating that they feel more connected. They feel like there's someone there when they need them. And that's actually that, that ability to think that you're supported when you need the support, not at a preordained moment in time, is really important to that cohort. So I think that perspective will change dependent on who the cohort are, you know, who the patient is and, and what's important to them in their lifestyle. But we consistently see that improvement across all of the programs. Yeah, I mean, I imagine the removal of a patient's anxiety and stress must ultimately improve their recovery as well. So it's a win-win, is it? Absolutely. And, and maybe even to, to add to that, you can think of the indirect benefits to society outside of the health system ourselves. You know, within health, we look very much at what is the hospital re-avoidance? How much can I save within my um, particular, um, for want of a better word, my particular pyramid or pillar of the health system? But, you know, you look at just, for example, the, the mental health space, we're seeing improvements and benefits for um, community services such as police and ambulance who don't uh, get as overburdened by those same cohorts in the transport to the hospital or, you know, attending um, during escalations or exacerbations or what have you. So there's also an additional societal benefit to be gained outside of what would sit directly on a healthcare P&L as well. Probably the most pressing issue for New Zealand and Australia is the global health workforce shortage. How does moving care into the community help to address that? Um, so I would suggest it's both a driver, a challenge and a benefit, right? So when we talk about it as a driver, the reality is we do not have the healthcare sector workforce to operate the way we would like today, right? Even, even locations that have never had a problem having enough staff are now struggling having those staff. So it is a driver that we must deliver healthcare differently. When we look at the challenge aspect of it, transformation requires people. It requires time. It requires education. It requires um, buy-in and, and, and focus. And where people are already burnt out through, you know, activities out of the pandemic and all of this, this other stuff, um, the appetite for change has to be driven that, that little bit harder. And it really is a change management program where you're changing models of, of care. From a benefit perspective, the when, when we talk to the staff involved in delivering these sorts of programs, they are quite fulfilled because they really are still directly driving benefits and even better benefits than could previously be expected within these cohorts. Um, they feel more enabled 
to do their job. They have more information at their fingertips to make better informed decisions. And at the end of the day, what is healthcare other than well-informed decisions applied in the appropriate circumstance to deliver an outcome for a particular patient? So there's a personal development element of it for them. Um, but also, you know, the, the key for many healthcare staff is retaining that feeling that they are directly affecting the outcomes for their patients. Um, so that has to be a focus in these transitions. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, in the past, people have often seen change management as a sort of add on to projects or something that might be cut, even if budgets get tight. Have you seen a change in understanding and acceptance of the role of change management in these big transformation projects? I think there's certainly a lot more acceptance that change management and um, I guess projectizing the transformation uh, is critical. Um, I think for some organisations, it's, it's understanding of the concept. For others, it's an understanding of how they implement it. Um, and that's really where the success factors are going to come as people work through these transformations is do you conceptually understand that you need it or do you actually know how to engage the right people in it and move it forward well is probably a good thing. So, yes, everyone very much accepts that change management is important. We've all heard it everywhere, seen it written everywhere. But I, I believe there's still a variation between different organisations as to which ones really understand how to do it, the challenges, the costs, you know, those investments, and which ones just conceptually know it should be done but, but maybe operate the way they used to at times. Interestingly, investing in AI has been identified as the top investment priority in the digital health technology category in the Australian report, including for clinical decision support and predicting outcomes. How did these technologies impact on models of care as well as where care can be delivered? Combining clinical decision support with patient self-management, population health management can greatly benefit from AI, as can many parts of the healthcare sector. Based on the predictive insights in patient populations, healthcare providers can identify patient deterioration using predictive analytics, and we see that both in the inpatient and the outpatient space, as well as allowing them to take those preventative actions, reduce the health risk, and save those unnecessary costs while improving the patient outcomes. Beyond the borders of the hospital, AI offers tremendous opportunity to empower the patients and consumers to proactively manage their own health. And we're seeing this huge change where the consumers have much higher expectations um, in, in that regard. And it gets embedded into the solutions for home care and for healthy living. This will enable people to take control over their own health, supported by intelligent advice as they need it, where they need it. And so doing that at scale uh, is going to be one of the real differentiators as to how care is delivered over the next few years. Thanks so much for joining me today, Dan, and thanks to Philips for sponsoring this podcast episode. You can find a link to the Future Health Index 2022 report in the description of this podcast episode, and that is free to download. To our listeners, be sure to subscribe to this podcast, and if you can take the time to review it, please do so, as that makes it easier for other people to find. Thanks for listening to eHealth Talk. Be sure to subscribe and share with your colleagues and friends. eHealth Talk, eHealth News, and the eHealth TV webinar series are supported by Health Informatics New Zealand. See hymns.org.nz for more information and become a member starting at just $17 a month. We also have affordable organisational membership options now for both our industry partners and healthcare providers.